Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So guys, we're trekking through the book of Hebrews, and I want to recap where we've gone so far. And just kind of give you, each week I want to build upon where we went the last week. And so chapter 1, so let's kind of just review here. Chapter 1 was all about the supremacy of Jesus. And so we looked at seven overarching pictures of who Jesus is and then how he's superior to the angels. And then as we started chapter 2 last week, if you remember... Verses 1 through 4, there was that huge warning. And what was the warning? Pay attention to what you've heard, because if you don't, what will you do? You will drift, drift away from the gospel, okay? You'll drift. And it's almost like a sandwich here. So like chapter 1 starts with this huge picture of Jesus, and then there's this warning, which is the first of five warnings in the book of Hebrews. Then in chapter 2, verses 5 through, is it 18, he goes back to Jesus and looks at it from a different angle. From chapter 1, where is the camera angle, if you will, or where's the perspective of where Jesus is? Where is he? He is in The right hand of the Father in heaven exalted. Okay, so chapter 1, we see the exalted, resurrected Christ ruling and reigning. Okay, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, the writer's going to take us back in time to Jesus on earth. And so oftentimes, you will hear church growth experts and people say things like, you shouldn't teach big theological words to today's people because they just can't understand it and so you got to water things down and people don't want to hear about big theological words now here's what i would say to that number one people are smarter than you think you are and number two the bible uses big theological words so the goal of a pastor is when he teaches is to explain the big theological words so that we can all understand them, okay? So we are going to look at two big theological words today. So here's what we're going to do. Last week the question was, and I'm so used to going over here and flipping it, so I'm just going to speak and you guys can follow along. The, the, the first big question is how do you combat or fight the temptation to drift away from Jesus? That was the whole issue of last week. Don't drift, remember? Don't drift. So the question then is, well, how do you... How do you not drift? How do you fight that temptation? Here's the answer that we will see. The way you combat the temptation to drift is to truly see Jesus as our suffering substitute. Now, before we even go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, most of you probably know one of my favorite passages of scriptures is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. What does Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 say? Fix your eyes on... Go ahead, Jenny. You're, you're, fix your eyes on 
Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So that passage later on in Hebrews is going to tell us to do what? Fix our eyes, look, okay? The writer's going to introduce that concept here of what? Of seeing Jesus, okay? And so what, are we, what does he want us to see about Jesus? So we're going to look at two theological truths that this passage of Scripture teaches as we go back to Jesus on earth, okay? So these are I-O-N words. We've talked about these I-O-N words over the years. Um, so here's the first theological truth. It's the incarnation. And so I've given you a definition of that, and we're going to unpack this first theological truth. The incarnation is this. The act of Jesus, the Son of God, whereby He entered history through the virgin birth, and took upon himself human nature. The word itself means in the flesh. So Jesus came in the flesh as a man. Was Jesus a man? Yes. yes. Was he fully man? Yes. Was he fully God? Yes. yes. Okay. So John 1.14 says this, And the word, that's talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the first big question you've got to ask is, okay, so what? He's going to introduce this theological term of the incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh. So what? And that's a huge question. Is the incarnation important? Yes. And we'll talk about why it's important. Second big truth. Maybe this word's even a little bit more foreign to us. Number two, big theological truth number two, propitiation. Now, if you've been around here long enough, you know that we've talked about this word. It's a biblical word. So here's what propitiation means. Definition. God must punish sin and execute justice against ungodliness. He did this by pouring out His righteous anger on Jesus in our place when He died on the cross. To propitiate means to turn aside or satisfy God's wrath by means of a substitutionary death. So when we think of propitiation, it's that God is angry at sin. Instead of pouring out His anger on us, He pours it out on Jesus in our place. Okay? And there's two other passages where we will see that. So we will see Romans 3, 24 through 25. It says, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So Romans, Paul uses the word propitiation. 1 John 4.10, John, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Paul uses the word propitiation, John uses the word propitiation, and the writer of Hebrews uses the word propitiation. So two big theological truths. Jesus coming in the flesh, incarnation. Jesus dying as a substitute, propitiation. Okay, so there's two big theological twos. But there are also two titles for Jesus that show up in here that are interesting titles that, we inter- that we're introduced to that are going to be used throughout the book of Hebrews. The first title is Pioneer. What's a pioneer? I'm hearing some. Person who blazes a trail a person who goes ahead, a person who scouts ahead and, and does the hard work to get to a place first, right? Okay. 
And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Jesus is called a pioneer in this passage of Scripture. Secondly, he's called a priest, the high priest. So Jesus is the pioneer priest. You didn't know that was Jesus' name, did you? You always thought his name was Jesus Christ. Well, he's also the pioneer priest. And we will look at, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Also, the writer is going to use Psalm 8 as an Old reference Testament, I mean, Old Testament reference to show us how Jesus came in the flesh, incarnation, and how he suffered as our substitute, substitution. So he's going to do an exposition or an explanation of Psalm 8, which was written by David, and he's going to apply that to Jesus. So here, it's very interesting. Remember, this is a sermon. Remember what I said from the very first time? The book of Hebrews is a sermon. What does a good pastor do when he's preaching? He cross-references passages of Scripture. What, can, he, can he cross-reference the New Testament here? What does he have to pull from? He has to pull from the Old Testament. But what does he do when he pulls from the Old Testament? He doesn't just quote the Old Testament and teach it as it's, it's Jewish. He quotes the Old Testament and applies it to Jesus. Because remember, the, all the, whole, all the whole Bible is about Jesus. Okay, So let's read Hebrews 2, um, 5 through 18. And, and this is right on the tails of what we looked at last week about paying a closer attention so that we don't drift away. And we talked about a nautical term where it was like losing your mooring when your anchor was not held down tight and you kind of slowly drifted over time away from Jesus. So here we go. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and that somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, that is man, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him, that is man, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we do see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder or pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil." and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, you guys tell me Psalm 8 
begins, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your... Remember that song by Michael W. Smith back in the day? And he quotes there from Psalm 8 when it's talking about humans. What's the crowning pinnacle of God's creation of the created order? We talked about this last week. Is it angels or is it humans? Okay? And obviously, humans are different than angels, but the Bible here in Psalm 8 says that God made humans with the purpose of having dignity, of ruling over creation, and they were made for a time, what, a little lower than the angels, okay? But here's the question. Where is Jesus right now? Where's Jesus right now? Not, in the, not here in the Bible, but like literally right now. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. Okay. What's he doing there? He's making intercession, he's ruling, and he's reigning. Okay? Now, what does verse 8 say? Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay? So verse 8 says that God has put everything in subjection to Jesus and there's been left nothing out of his control. Now, this speaks of the absolute sovereignty of Jesus. Is there anything outside of Jesus' control? Okay, let's look at Ephesians 1, 19-22. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That speaks of the universal sovereignty of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. Now, When we look from an earthly vantage point, does it look like that's happening right now? Does it look like things are out of control at times? Does it look like things aren't under Christ's sovereign rule? What's the problem? Is the problem Jesus or us? The problem is us, and the problem is that we can't see behind the cosmic curtain to see how God is sovereignly working things out by His will. But one thing we do know, what does it say there in verse 8? There has been nothing left outside of Jesus' control. So here's the question. Does knowing this truth bring you comfort and assurance? It should. It should. So let's just look at some scriptures that teach that Jesus is in control. Psalm 33, 8-11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah fourteen twenty seven. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? And the answer is nobody. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my 
purpose. Not I might accomplish some of my purpose, but what does it say? I will, I will accomplish all my purpose. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who does what? Works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, here's the question in relation to drift that we talked about last week. With this knowledge that Jesus is sovereignly in control of all things, should this not lead us to worship Him and not drift? Is there a tendency to drift when we don't fully understand or appreciate the absolute sovereignty of Christ? Is there a temptation to drift when we don't understand that God is in control? So the writer of Hebrews says, listen, one of the ways that you cannot drift, one of the ways that you can stay anchored is to continually bringing yourself back to the absolute sovereignty of Christ over all things. And when you lose sight of that, you begin to drift. Now, I'm not actually going to go verse by verse per se through this. I'm going to go thematically because I think if we look at this thematically, I think it makes a little bit more sense than to get kind of bogged down in a lot of what's going on here. So what he's going to do here is he's going to unpack these two truths. What are the two truths? The incarnation and propitiation. Okay? So let's write these two things up here. We've got the incarnation, which is what? Jesus came in the flesh. He was fully man. And propitiation, which means on the cross, Jesus absorbed or turned aside God's wrath so that we would not have to experience that justice. Okay? So these are the two truths. And interwoven in these two truths are going to be the two titles. What did I say were the two titles of Jesus? He's the pioneer and the priest. Okay? So let's just see how these things... Whoops, pioneer and pioneer. Priest. Okay, so let's just see how these things unfold as we move through this. How does verse 9 begin? But we what? What does your Bible say? We see Him. Now, does anybody here see Jesus? But we're supposed to fix our eyes on Him, right? So right from the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, the writer's telling us to fix our eyes on Him. We see Him who what? For a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that He might, by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. So let's think of these two titles first before we get to the two truths. Okay? Verse 10, the pioneer, the two titles, the pioneer. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder. That word founder is an interesting word. It means pioneer. I want you to think of the Exodus here for a moment because a lot of the themes in Exodus are going to show up in Hebrews. You guys tell me what happened in the Exodus. What was the Exodus story all about? Okay, where was, where was Israel? They were in slavery. Okay? They were in slavery in Egypt. And how did God provide for them to get out of slavery? A sacrificial, propitiatory lamb 
the Passover lamb that they had to kill and put the blood on the doorpost and lintels of the house. And then the angel of death passed over. And then what happened? What did God do? Did God just said, you're on your own now? He, what did he do? He led them. What, how did he lead them? Through the Red Sea by a pillar of fire at night and cloud of smoke by day. So in a sense, what did God do? God was the pioneer who delivered and brought the people to glory. That's what the Exodus is all about. God delivering his people by the blood of a lamb and leading them, pioneering them to glory, which was the promised lamb. Okay? So in the same way, Jesus is our leader and pioneer. What has he done? He's brought to us freedom in the spiritual promised land through his sacrifice as the true Passover lamb. Now that word founder or pioneer, it can also mean leader, captain, prince, founder. It's the same word that's in Hebrews 12 too. Let's go to Hebrews 12 too that I brought up earlier. Looking to Jesus or keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the what? The founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder, the pioneer. He's the pioneer, the leader, the captain, the prince of our faith. We see this also in the, in the book of Acts. In some of the sermons that are preached in the book of Acts, we see Jesus being referred to this. So in Acts three fourteen to 15 Peter gets up and says, You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The author is the same word for pioneer here. You killed the author. So Jesus is, can be considered. So these words here, when, when the ESV uses the word founder, we can look at the word pioneer. We can look at the word author. It can also be translated captain, prince, leader. Let's see where else it shows up in the book of Acts. Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader. Here it says leader. Same word, pioneer. And savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So the word has a rich meaning. Originator, initiator, founder, leader, pioneer, author. Think about what Jesus has done. He's the initiator, the founder, the leader. The, the, and how has he done this? Did he come into Bethlehem or did he come into Jerusalem and was he born in a palace and did he ride up on a white horse and come out and say, okay, here's my kingdom. I am conquering this through power, through politics, through prestige, and through popularity. I'm going to throw my weight around and that's how I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to be like Donald Trump. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> that was not a political statement. What does he say there? What does, the, what does verse 10 say? How did he do it? For it was fitting. It's interesting. It was fitting. It was, that word fitting means it was really God's sovereign plan to do it this way. It was fitting. It was appropriate. For whom and by whom all things exist. Okay, so he's the creator. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? Jesus is the creator. And what does he do? He brings many sons to glory, just like God brought the Israelites to glory. Jesus brings us to glory. He was made the founder of our salvation. How? Through what? Through suffering. Through suffering. So it's through the cross 
So Jesus is the one that is made perfect. Now, how do we deal with the issue of Jesus being made perfect? We've got to deal with that. What does it not mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? What does it not mean? Can it mean that Jesus is not perfect? No. no. And how do we know that besides just I, don't, I know that? Go back to chapter 1, verse 2. What did it tell us? I mean, chapter 1, verse 2, yeah. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus is the exact representation of God. So Jesus is perfect, okay? But did Jesus, when he came in the flesh, was he God? Was he man? Okay. Was there any point in Jesus' ministry where he could have stopped and not gone all the way to the cross? He could have done that. Okay, he could have come in the flesh. He could have been born as a virgin. He could have lived and started his ministry. He could have cast out demons. He could have healed the sick. He could have walked on water. He could have taught. And then when it came time to be like in his trial and when he's being flogged, What could he have done at that point? He could have called down angels and said to God, I'm not going to go through with this. I'm going to go back up to heaven. I don't want to go through the suffering. But if he would have done that, what would have happened? We would never have been saved. Now, as a man and not an angel, and as God, not a man, Why is Jesus the only one qualified to go to the cross? Can an animal be sacrificed in place of a human? That's the way the Old Testament worked. Temporarily. Okay. But if humans are the ones sinning, is an animal identified with a human? No. Okay. Do angels angels need to be redeemed? No, angels are perfect. So can an angel die for us? They don't don't identify with us. So it has to be a man to die. Well, if it's a normal man, what does that man have? His own sin. So he can't die in the place of other men because he, he has sin. But it still has to be a man. So how in the world does it happen where God die where Jesus dies as a man? He has to come as God in the flesh to die. And when it says Jesus was made perfect, it doesn't mean that Jesus somehow um, earned this perfection because he was somehow sinful. It meant that as fully God and fully man, he had to go all the way to the cross to complete the work. That's how he was made perfect. So I kind of wrote it here in a statement. So in his incarnation as God in the flesh, he endured every type of temptation we endured and successfully obeyed God's will in thought, word, and deed, something of which no human, not even Adam, had ever successfully accomplished. The proof of his final obedience was his willingness to go to the cross and endure God's punishment for us. Okay? So do you guys understand the pioneer concept of Jesus? He's the leader. He's the captain. He's the pioneer. He's the author. And how did he accomplish that? Through suffering. Okay? Title number two. Jesus is also the priest. The high priest. Look at verse 17. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. This is the very first time Jesus is referred to as the high priest, which is the key image of Jesus throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. No other book in the New Testament portrays Jesus as the high priest with the exception of maybe John 17, which is called the high priestly prayer, but specifically referred to as the high priest. So let's talk just a little bit right now because we're going to keep coming back to it. What was the high priest in Israel? What did he do? Yeah, he was the one man who had to be purified to go in and represent the people in the Holy of Holies and sacrifice and pray on behalf of the people. So what does the high priest do? He prays for the people, and he sacrifices for the people. Now, Jesus as the high priest, what does he do? He prays for the people, and he sacrifices for the people. But he's not offering the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. But notice the descriptions there. He is, first of all, a merciful high priest. Nowhere in the Old Testament did it ever say that the high priests were merciful. It didn't talk about their, their attitude. It just they did their job. What does it mean that Jesus is merciful? It means that he, when he died in the cross as our high priest, it was the fullest expression of God's love. Okay. So he's the merciful high priest. But what is he also? He's faithful. Faithful to who? To God. He was faithful in obeying everything God gave him to do. So as both our pioneer and priest who secured our salvation we need to now see what Jesus actually accomplished to do that. So instead of going verse by verse through this, I want to show you how the writer addresses these two theological truths and intersperse them throughout this section. Okay? So he is the priest. He is the pioneer. Those are his titles of what he is. Now let's see how he's accomplished incarnation and propitiation. Okay? So let's first of all look at incarnation. Number one, Jesus became a human lower than the angels. What does verse 9 say? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. What does that mean? It's in relation to Psalm 8. What's, what does it mean that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a little while? That's that he came as a man. He came in the flesh for a little while. How long had Jesus existed? Forever. And at a point in time, what happened? In order to die on the cross, he had to add humanity to his divinity. Jesus never subtracted anything. He just added. He's always been divine. He just added humanity to his divinity and came as a virgin. I mean, in the virgin birth, he couldn't come as well. He was a virgin. But he came through the virgin birth to being a little lower than the angels for a little while. Number two, Jesus shared in flesh and blood as fully human. What does verse 14 say? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus partook of what same things? Sharing in flesh and blood. Number three, Jesus was made like humans, his brothers in every respect. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And then verse, I mean, then number four, Jesus as a human experienced all the same temptations we experience. Verse 18. And we'll come back to that in chapter four. So here's the question. Why is the incarnation so important for us to understand? What is the danger of not understanding this truth? Why is the incarnation important? Yes. Without Jesus becoming the second Adam, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jesus is the second Adam because what did the first Adam fail to do? He failed to obey God. He was kicked out of the garden and he brought sin into the human race. Jesus as the second Adam did what? No sin, fully obeyed God and went to the cross as our representative. Just as Adam was a representative of the entire human race, Jesus is the representation of all of those who believe in him. What are some heresies out there? There are some people that actually believe that Jesus did not come in the flesh. That he was kind of like a ghost. Some people struggle with the fact that Jesus was tempted in every way we were. We kind of have this pious view of Jesus that he never really dealt with issues like we deal with. What are some temptations we deal with? Let's just list them. What are some temptations? Not maybe not I specifically deal with this temptation. Let's not but like <laughs> us as people in generalities. What are some temptations that my neighbor deals with? No, no, just what Yeah, we're not gonna confess our deep dark secrets. What are some temptations that we as people deal with? Okay, greed. Lust. Pride. What else? Lying, cheating, selfishness. Anybody else want to add some? Anger. Anger. It's a pretty good list. What about impatience? <laughs> Jealousy. That's a good one. We put lust, but let's just use sexual temptations. Okay, greed, materialism. Okay, so these are all temptations that are common to people. And the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way we were, yet without sin. Was Jesus tempted with greed? Does he know what it's like? Was he tempted with lust? That's hard for us to figure out. There's some, I remember that at my old church we had an interim pastor, and he talked about the incarnation. And he was talking about how when the woman came and broke the alabaster jar on Jesus' feet, and washed him with her hair and how she was a prostitute. He brought up the point that that could have been a moment of temptation for Jesus to have this woman come close. And there were some people that were shocked that he was heretical. Jesus would never be tempted sexually. But here's the question. Was he tempted in every way we were? What's the one difference? What's the one thing that Jesus has done that nobody else has done? He's He's fully endured temptation to the very end, meaning that It came with the full force of power, and he never once gave in. No human can say that. Only Jesus can do that. And so all these temptations he is, he's been faced with. So the incarnation, number one, we have a Savior that identifies with us, that became one of us. You know, all the other world religions do not have an answer to human suffering, except for Christianity. What does Buddhism say? Suffering is an illusion. It's not even real. Your best hope is to be reincarnated in your next life and come around better. Come around as a grasshopper as opposed to an ant. I don't know. (laughs) Hinduism, the same thing. Islam does not have an answer to it. Christianity says suffering is real, sin is real, pain is real, and God actually decided to enter into the midst of all that as a human, fully God and fully man, and to deal with all the junk we deal with ultimately to the cross. 
So we have a God who actually came in the flesh to deal with all of the sin in the world so that he could identify with us to be a perfect substitute. So the incarnation is very, very important. It's very, very important. Any other reasons why you think it's important to understand the incarnation? Why that truth is important? All right. Let's look at the second big theological truth, and that is propitiation. Now remember, what is propitiation? Satisfying God's righteous anger against sin by dying in our place as a substitute. Okay, so let's, the first thing we see propitiation here is Jesus' suffering of death was God's will to bring glory to himself. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, there's incarnation, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. That's the resurrection and ascension. Because of the suffering of death, there's propitiation, so that by the grace of God he might taste death. He might taste death. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. So it was in his death, it brought glory and honor to God for Jesus to die. Number two, Jesus tasting death on the cross was the greatest expression of God's grace to sinners. So let's talk about the metaphor of tasting death. Why does the writer use that terminology? Jesus tasted death. Did he taste anything while he was on the cross? The bitter, the bitter, the bitter um, wine vinegar, but in a sense, was there like... Is dying on the cross tasting something? It's a metaphor. But it harkens back to tasting something. What it reminds us of is that this metaphor of tasting reminds us of Jesus drinking the full cup of God's wrath against sin, not just a little sip. He fully drank the cup. He tasted the cup of God's wrath. Now, where do we get this imagery of the cup of God's wrath? Where do we get this imagery? When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, 43 through, or 34-36, Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Luke's gospel tells us that. But notice what Jesus said. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. Remove this cup. So what's the cup? Why would Jesus use the terminology, I don't want to experience the cup. What do you do with the cup? You drink it. You drink the cup. So the question is, what is the cup and what is in the cup that Jesus was to the point of sweating drops of blood that he didn't want to experience? Well, we've got to go back to the Old Testament and look at the imagery of what the cup was. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunken from the hand of the Lord of the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. What's it say there? The cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Jeremiah 49, 12. For thus says the Lord, If those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? Yet you shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. 
all throughout the Old Testament, the cup of God deals with his wrath. In the book of Revelation, isn't God saying he's going to pour out the winepress of the cup of his wrath? So when Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father, there are sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's basically saying, God, I am willing to drink to the very bottom your cup of wrath against sin. And I'm going to drink it because I don't want that wrath to be poured out on my people but I want it to come upon me. So William Lane, who's a a commentator, has said this, fully conscious that his mission entails submission to the horror of the holy wrath of God against human sin and rebellion, the will of Jesus clasped the transcendently lofty and sacred will of God. Jesus agreed with God in light of the horror of wrath. So when the writer here says Jesus tasted death, you can almost go down to verse 17 where it talks about making propitiation for the sins of the people. He's he's contextually there when he's talking about the cross, this whole idea of tasting, propitiation, wrath. The imagery that in our mind should be sin is such a huge deal to God that he has to punish it. And the way that he punishes it is he pours it out on Jesus in our place. And Jesus knew. Was Jesus afraid of the Roman soldiers and what they were going to do? Was Jesus afraid of the nails? No. He wasn't afraid of anything. But what was going to be the worst amount of suffering for Jesus, far worse than the nails in his hands and the crown of thorns and the, and the cat of nine tails, was going to be the spiritual suffering he was going to experience. Were you going to say something? Yeah, the spiritual death. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that he was tormented. It was... It was what he was tormented over, sweating drops of blood, was experiencing the full wrath of God and crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, taking on our sin and being spiritually separated, in a sense, being treated like he was a sinner even though he was not. Okay? So propitiation really means that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to drink it. Now, here's the issue about wrath. Jesus or, or God is going God has will pour out his wrath in one of two ways. One way is he poured it out upon Jesus in our place, and Jesus took that. Does that mean God's not going to pour out wrath anymore because it was poured out on Jesus? Sin still has to be punished. So what's the only other way? The only other alternative is that's what hell is. Hell is the eternal conscious torment of experiencing the wrath of God. So one of two ways. You either experience God's wrath in hell forever or you experience God's wrath through Jesus so you don't have to experience it because Christ experienced it in your place. And you receive Him through faith and get spared that that justice. Okay? So that's one aspect of propitiation. But let's look at number three. Jesus' death destroyed both death and the devil. Look at verse 14. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same thing. There's incarnation. They're woven both back and forth in these verses. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Now there's a big book that's really in-depth, and it's a classic, and it's hard to read, but it's, it's probably the best book. It's called this, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Think about that for a moment. 
The death of death and the death of Christ. So in Christ's death, what did he kill? Death. Death experienced a death in the death of Christ. Jesus destroyed that. He destroyed both death and the one who holds the power of death. And who is that? The devil. The devil. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57. Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus kill on the cross? Death. It no longer has sting. It no longer has power. And notice what he said there in 2 Timothy 1, 8-10. Therefore, Timothy, young pastor, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What did God do? He saved us. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did what? Abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What does it mean to abolish something? To get rid of it. When we abolished slavery, what did we do? We got rid of it. We killed it. It's it's over. So what did Jesus do with death? He killed it. And what did he do to the devil? What does it say there? He destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He destroyed the devil. Now, we may be confused here. What is it? If, if Jesus destroyed the devil on the cross, then why is the devil still around today? I thought he was, he should have been destroyed on the cross, but do we know the devil's still around? Is he a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? Yes. But we have to understand the Greek word for destroy there. It doesn't mean to annihilate or to obliterate. What it means is to deprive something of its full power. So, in other words, on the cross, Jesus strips Satan of his full power. And one day in the future, Jesus will cast the devil into the lake of fire forever. Okay, we know at the end of Revelation that the devil does get thrown into the lake of fire. So right now, he's still active. But let me just give you a reminder. Is Satan equal with God? Satan is a creature. And Satan is still God's Satan. And he can only do what God allows him to do. So Satan doesn't have free reign over the earth. He's been stripped of ultimate power. And he can, he's still a creature. He has to answer to God. Satan's more like us than he is like God. Because he's a creation. He has to answer to God. Now look at 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil... For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. One day it will happen for, for, good, for good. Revelation 20.10 And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So yes, in a sense, on the cross, Jesus rendered Satan's full power Um, He doesn't have full power. He still has limited power. But one day, Jesus will totally and finally annihilate Satan and throw him into the lake of fire, where he will spend eternity in the lake of fire. But that's a future day. Okay? What else did Jesus' death do on the cross? Number four, 
Jesus' death on the cross delivered us from spiritual slavery. Look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to what? Lifelong slavery. It's interesting that he talks about fear of death. Do Christians fear death? Or should we fear death? Do non-Christians fear death? They may say they don't. I mean, you may talk to non-Christians. They may say, you know, it's just when I die, it's black, and I kind of go sleep, and there's nothing there. But if you really pin them down and say, are you really sure you know what's on the other side? And they have no hope. Whether they articulate it or not or express it or not, I'm sure they're scared to death of what's out there. And so there's fear in death for a lost person. Why? Because you're in what? Lifelong slavery. Spiritual slavery. Now, think about the Exodus again. What do we say happened in the Exodus? What was Israel? They were in literal slavery, right? They were, you know, harsh Egyptian taskmasters were beating them and they were in slavery and they cried out to God, we're in slavery, we want to get out of here. And God delivered them from slavery. Okay, Has Jesus, and how were they delivered from slavery? By the blood of a lamb that was a propitiation. How was the Passover lamb a propitiation? The angel of death. What happens if you didn't have blood? Your firstborn son would die. Hebrews later on, we'll find out in chapter 11, he's called the destroyer. He pours out God's wrath on the Egyptians. And the only way the Israelites were spared God's wrath is because they had a substitute, Jesus. Okay? So think about this. Let's go back to those two titles for Jesus. Jesus as the pioneer and the priest is our Passover lamb who delivered us by his blood from spiritual slavery. Now, Colossians 1, 13, and they're having fun, aren't they? Colossians 1, 13, and 14 says this. This is about Jesus. He has delivered us from where? The domain of darkness. Does that sound like spiritual slavery? The domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. And transferred us where? To the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in the cross of Christ, what did He do? He delivered us, He transferred us, He brought us, He forgave us. We have a new identity we don't, we don't have to fear death, and we're no longer in lifelong slavery. Okay? Now, here comes the beauty of this entire passage. We've seen who Jesus is. Who is he? He's our pioneer, our leader, our initiator. What else is he? He's our high priest. And what has he done? He's come in the flesh to identify with us. And what has He done on the cross? He's borne God's wrath against sin so that we would not have to experience that. So the question is, that's fine and good, Sean. That's a great historical event. What does that mean for us? Well, this passage of Scripture tells us. In our salvation, God has mercifully and graciously done some awesome things for us who did not deserve such a great salvation. Now, let's go back up to verse 3. Remember the warning? If you don't pay attention, you're going to drift. And then verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such what? A great salvation. 
Now, before we even look at the, what I'm going to show you next, has what we've seen so far a great salvation? Isn't Jesus being our pioneer a great salvation? Isn't Jesus being our priest a great salvation? Isn't Jesus coming in the flesh, identifying with us a great salvation? Isn't Jesus propitiating God's wrath in our place a great salvation? Isn't that a great salvation? And we could just stop right there. But the writer goes on and he sprinkles in some wonderful blessings of what it means to be saved and experience this great salvation. So let's just look at these. Number one, we will be brought to glory. Look at verse 10. We see him for, for it was fitting. Whoops. Yeah, here we go. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. We, it's interesting that it's talked about in the past tense there. Bringing many sons to glory. Have we gotten there yet? It's a trick question. Are we in heaven yet? No, physically. What does Ephesians chapter 2 say? We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. So in God's mind, it's as if we're already in glory, even though we're not there yet. But what's the promise? Jesus is going to bring us to glory as the pioneer, as the new Moses. Because the next chapter says Jesus is greater than Moses. What did Moses do? Moses was the pioneer that brought the sons of Israel into glory. What has Jesus done with us? As the pioneer through the cross, he's brought us into the spiritual promised land, heaven, glory. Okay? Number two, we're being sanctified. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What does it mean to be sanctified? What does that mean? Made pure. Now, there's two different aspects of sanctification. So you need to be just a little bit nuanced when you talk about sanctification in the Bible. One is a positional, this is not in your notes, but I figured it would be helpful to talk about it. One is positional sanctification. One is progressive sanctification. They're intrinsically tied together, but they're different. Positional sanctification happens the moment God saves you. He sanctifies you. He makes you holy. He sets you apart for His purposes. It is a position that never changes. That's why we can be called saints. That's what a saint is. That's how Paul starts all his letters. To the saints who are in Corinth. To the saints who are in Galatia. To those who have been sanctified. So positionally, as a position, the way God sees us, we are forever holy, purified, sanctified because of the blood of Christ. Okay? But... There's also a sense in which the Bible talks about progressive sanctification in the sense that, what does progressive mean besides flow on the, you know, is that progressive? Slow. To grow over a period of time. So progressive sanctification is the slow, sometimes painful, daily process, progress, movement of becoming who we actually are. And some of us are on different growth patterns there. So 
when he's talking here, he's talking about, I think he's talking about positional sanctification here in Hebrews. Because he says, we, what is it, where he says that in verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He's not necessarily talking about spiritual growth here. It's all in the context of what he's made us when we become Christians. He's, he's sanctified us. He set us apart. He's made us holy. He's made us pure. He's, he, he's done all these things. Now, this is an awesome thing, too. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Look at the second half of verse 11. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's a, that comes from Psalm 22. Interesting. Are we brothers and sisters of Jesus? Yes. God's our Father. We've been adopted into His family. And Jesus is not ashamed. Now think about that for a moment. Have you ever experienced a time in your life where somebody was ashamed to be seen with you? Where they kind of like, ooh, I don't, want to be, I don't want to be associated with them. It's not like on the day of judgment or on that final day when you show up, Jesus is going to be like, ooh, I don't want to be around. I don't. He says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother and my sister. Now, it's interesting because it comes from Psalm 22. But how does Psalm 22 start? Anybody know how Psalm 22 starts? It's the most famous messianic psalm. Psalm 22.1. I've got it there on your sheet, but you can just, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Does that sound familiar? This is a psalm of David being chased in the wilderness, having his enemies you know, coming around him. And what's David saying? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I feel all alone. Jesus takes this psalm, and what does he speak on the, on the cross? My God, my God, why have you? That's propitiation, is it not? Taking the full anger of God so that we won't have to experience it. But then if you go down to verse 22, 22 in Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you in the midst of the congregation. The word congregation really there is ecclesia. Does anybody know what the word ecclesia is? It's the word for church. Ek in Greek means out of. This comes from the Greek word kaleo, means to call. So the church really is the called out ones. What have we been called out of? Spiritual slavery and darkness into God's light. And so oftentimes the congregation, the called, the assembly, the, the ecclesia. And this is the context that Jesus says there. Look what he says there in verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So... Notice how Jesus calls us part of his family in the congregation. This is where we get the word church. In other words, Jesus has saved us to live together in community as the church, not in individualistic isolation from others as Lone Ranger disconnected from the congregation of God's people. Jesus could have said, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and you guys can hang out over here by yourself on an island and just kind of watch internet TV by yourself and go to the lake when you want to and just kind of be this Lone Ranger Christian. What does Jesus say? I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters in the church. And why brothers and sisters? 
it emphasizes family, that we are a church family. And we are children in God's family. He goes on to say that. That's number four. I mean, we've kind of already talked about that. Verses 13 and 14. Since therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. Here's another thing we see. We are the offspring of Abraham. Look at verse 16. For surely it was not angels that he helps. Why do angels not need to be helped? They don't need salvation. They're already perfect. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, obviously, who's he writing to here? Jewish Christians. And they would that makes sense. Okay, they're the offspring of Abraham because they are ethnically Jews. Does that make you an offspring of Abraham? Not according to Romans chapter 4 or Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, we could go on a whole tangent of what it means to be Abraham's offspring, but I just preached through Genesis a few years ago, and I think we got that down maybe, hopefully. So here's the ultimate question. What was the question from the very beginning of tonight? How is knowing this helping us to fate the temptation to drift what did we look at last week we spent all this time last week let's just go back and read chapter two let's read the very beginning of the chapter therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it there's a temptation to drift imperceptibly slowly casually unnoticeably where you drift. And so there's always going to be the pull for us to drift. What's going to help us not drift? Well, the conclusion. Verse 18 is the conclusion. What does it say in verse 18? For. Starts with for. Because. For because. For because. That's an interesting way to start. A, I don't know if that's good grammar. It's two prepositions together. For because. That's a pretty strong statement. For because. Is it for or because? Yes, it's for because. For because he himself suffered when tempted. What does the last sentence there say? He is what? Able to what? Help those who are being tempted. In the context of tempted to do what? <laughs> to drift. The conclusion in verse 18, Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. The Greek word able there. He's able um, I think it's dunamis, which is a Greek word that means power. Jesus has the power, the ability to help us who are being tempted. And you have to stop and say, okay, tempted to do what? Well, what's the context telling us? How'd the chapter start? The temptation is to drift so what must we do to not drift to not be tempted to drift i think there's two things we see here we must number one consistently see who christ is in all of his glory as pioneer and priest in his incarnation and propitiation 
So we've got to keep reminding ourselves, Jesus is my leader. Jesus is my captain. Jesus is my high priest. He's come in the flesh for me. He's propitiated God's wrath. I've got to keep seeing that. I've got to keep worshiping him for that. I've got to always keep that before me. And that's going to help me not drift if I keep before me who Christ is and what he's done. But number two, we have to consistently remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and what he's made us. What has he done? He's rescued us from slavery. He's not ashamed to call us his children. He's taken us to glory. He's made us children. He sanctified us. So you've got two things going here. Who Christ is and what he's done and who we are. We've got to keep those two things always before us. I think the writer of Hebrews says, and if you do that, you won't be tempted to drift. Because where will your eyes be? They will always be on Jesus and His cross and what He's done, and they'll always be on who you are in Him and how you must live for Him in light of that. So here's the issue so far in Hebrews. And I I started out with this sandwich. You almost have this sandwich effect or, or bookends. Bookend number one, Jesus is reigning in heaven as sovereign over all things. Keep your mind on that. Middle, pay attention that you don't drift away. Book in number two, just in case you forgot, look at Jesus as the suffering substitute who has saved us by grace through his coming in the flesh and bearing God's justice, justice as our pioneer and priest. So sandwiched in between. So like, here's the thing, don't drift. And on both sides, the bookends are, look to Jesus as glorious in heaven, as the sovereign supreme ruler of all things. Look to Jesus in his cross as supreme and sovereign over all things. And if you keep always looking at Jesus, you won't drift. And so this first section of Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 is deeply theological, but it's to lead us to not drift. So let me just ask you a very simple question. Does deep theology affect your day-to-day life? Why? Okay. But what would you hear from people on the radio or TV or books? What do they say? You, you shouldn't get into deep theology. It's all pie in the sky. If you start talking about doctrine theology, just it gets confusing and people don't want to hear that. And what they really want to hear are practical tips for living. Give me five steps to have a better marriage, five steps to balance my budget, how to have um, no stress at the workplace. Give me, these, give me these little tips for living. Do those go very far? It, it doesn't give you the God. What were you going to say, Russell? So, Yeah. 
Whoops. I said I was going to step on Dave, but I didn't. I Bible thumped him. I threw my Bible at Dave. So it's interesting. If you were to tell somebody that was a new Christian or you were, or somebody, somebody struggling, they're like, man, I'm, I am just really struggling with temptation. I, I don't know about this whole Christian walk thing. I, there's so many things pulling me away. Would your first natural intention be to take them to Hebrews chapters 1 and 2? Maybe now, but would that be your first inclination? What would you tell them? Look to Jesus as your pioneer and your priest who came in the flesh and died in your place and is now ruling and reigning in heaven and he's sovereign over all things. And when you constantly remind yourself of that and what he's done for you, then you will have your eyes on Jesus and he will become greater than all these things that are pulling towards you. Does that make sense? Okay. We got done a little early tonight because this is a, I didn't want to go move into chapter 3. Are there any questions or anything else that you guys observed from this text that we can, we can look at? Been taught to you when you were young. It would sure saved me a lot. Okay, it would have saved you a lot of heartache. Yes, it would. So, I'm not picking on your past, Odie, but do you think you were in a church that didn't emphasize? The only thing that was emphasized was that you had to be saved, and that it was beat into. Yeah. That every week was a salvation message, which is yes. good. And it was, but you need the meat of the Bible. Yeah. To carry that through, then, and I yeah. didn't have that. Yeah. Well, what happens once you're saved? You have to grow. And you know, and a lot of churches, and I'm not picking other churches here because every church has its own flavor, and own character, and own ethos. But there are a lot of churches that are really evangelistic and do a good job of. A lot of people get saved in those churches, and every week it's a salvation message. But if you've been a Christian for 20 years, and that's what you hear every week. Are you being strengthened to actually progress as a Christian? Okay, nothing wrong with, uh, don't hear me wrong. We want people to get saved. But a lot of times in those churches, what ends up happening to those people that get saved, they stick around for two or three months and then they go find another church. So that church does a great job of, I hate to use the word, getting people saved. They see a lot of salvations and conversions, but the back door is wide open because those people aren't getting discipled and they go find a church where they can get discipled. Yes, sir. I'm coming over here so I can get you. Given the milk, but not providing the meat. I mean, yeah. we don't we don't allow our Christians to grow in this yeah. in this society. Yeah. And so we many Christians are stuck in that milk, and yeah. where they have to go on their own to get the meat. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, there's a lot of milky churches out there. Some people are way too satisfied right there. Uh, with, the with the milk. Yeah, and he's even going to address that. We get, he's like, you guys are still on. He, he's going to talk about this later on. He's like, you guys are still on milk. And you should have moved. You should be on meat by now. You know, no more Gerber's little, you know, mashed up carrots. You guys got to be eating T-bone steaks, spiritually speaking. <laughs>